Welcome to Bite Sized, a cybersecurity Q&A presented to you by Kroll & Morin. Our goal is to take the complex world of government contract cybersecurity and break it down into bite-sized pieces. My name is Kate Growley. And I'm Evan Wolf. Every other week, we'll take one question that we frequently hear from our clients and give you a short and hopefully simple answer that explains why it matters. This week, we want to talk about the safeguarding clause or the 252.204.7012 clause. As many companies are waiting for the final publication of the CMMC rule, we thought it would be helpful to talk about the over the next four weeks the clauses that are important to the rule, the 7012 clause, the 7019, the 7020, and the 7021. But today we're gonna to start off with our favorite clauses because not all clauses are, are equal. And Kate, my favorite clause is the 252.204.7012 clause. So Kate, at a high level, what is the DFARS 252.204.7012 clause? Well, in addition to being our favorite clause, um, it's also one of the most common cybersecurity clauses that we see in federal government contracts. So at a high level, the idea is that the DOD, Department of Defense, they know that it regularly asks its contracting partners to handle all kinds of sensitive but unclassified forms of information, and that that information is necessary for the contractors to do their work. Um, of course, folks will remember from one of our prior episodes that the DOD frequently refers to this kind of information as covered defense information, which is to say that it's really just controlled, unclassified information, CUI, being handled by a DOD contractor. Again, if folks want a refresher on that uh, admittedly confusing line of acronyms, please do circle back to some of our old episodes on CUI and CDI, respectively. But um, in, in any event, through this standard DFARS clause, the DOD, it's contractually telling contractors that if we do ask you to handle CDI and the performance of this work, then you're going to be required to protect it. And that happens through three requirements. At a high level, first, you'll need to make sure that the network you're keeping the CDI on is protected by, what's, by what the clause calls adequate security. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in here in a second. Second, you'll need to do what is called rapid reporting if you think there's been a cyber incident on that network. And then third, to the extent that you'll rely on subcontractors to help do that work, you have to think about when to flow down this clause into those subcontracts. So, Kate, what is the term adequate security that you just used mean exactly? Uh, yes, adequate security, it's such a simple term on paper, but in reality, it's a really meaty concept. Uh, so the bite-sized version is that contractors need to do two things to demonstrate that they've protected their networks with adequate security. So here, the first is that they'll need to implement a specific NIST standard across that network. I know we've referenced it a few times throughout, again, our prior episodes, but the NIST standard that applies here is NIST Special Publication 800-171. And I promise that we will do an episode completely focused on that standard, but for our purposes here, the point is that this is the standard that is typically going to apply under 7012. Now, the second aspect to adequate security, that involves some tailoring. So in addition to everything that's baked in to that 800-171 standard, you also need to take a critical look at your unique risk landscape and determine 
what else you may need to do to mitigate those risks. So for subcontractors, this is the important piece. This may mean that under the adequate security requirement, you need to do more than what 171 requires on its face. So flipping the script a bit, Evan, rapid reporting, that's that second leg of the three-legged 7012 stool. What does that mean? So rapid, uh, rapid reporting means that a contractor must uh, report to the Department of Defense, in this case, the, the, the DibNet portal, uh, within 72 hours of a cyber incident occurring on a covered information system that, that has CDI on it. So what that means is that you need to be able to report 72 hours, which if you do a lot of incident response is, is early enough on in the incident that, that, it, that you don't often know what the totality of the incident is and, and the requirement is 72 hours of discovery. So that means you need to act quickly and really have a very uh, good and, and sort of solid approach to managing incident response. That's why many government contractors invest fairly heavily on having an incident response plan, having the appropriate tooling to be able to do the detection and notification. And, and also on the pure tech side, have infrastructure like uh, endpoint detection response tools that will enable them to conduct that information. Because once you report that, there are other report requirements in terms of information preservation and, 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 and sort of what you need to do on the back end. But the basic requirement is reporting to DOD within 72 hours of discovery of any cyber incident on a covered information system. So Evan, what about the flow down requirements? What do those look like? Yeah, this is ostensibly the easiest of the requirements on paper, but by far, I think one of the more difficult ones. The requirement is that, that any contractor that handles CDI on behalf of a government in pursuit of a contract needs to flow it down to any subcontractors that, that they are providing CDI to. And that means you need to not only flow down the clause in, in their agreements, if they are having access to CDI, um, but that also means you need to also they also need to be able to do not only the adequate security that we talked about, but also the rapid reporting and also flow it down to any of the subcontractors that they're performing to in pursuit of this contract. So it often can can get carried down pretty quickly down down a supply chain, and and that means that that there are many contractors that will need to be complying with with the seventy twelve clause, and 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 th that has proven to be uh, you know a bit complicated to to manage for subs and primes sometimes. Yeah, for sure. Easy in theory does not always translate to easy in practice. And we will continue to explore that theme when we talk next time around about the new 7019 clause. And then we'll talk more about 7020 and ultimately CMMC. But in the meantime, thank you all for joining another episode of Bite Size Q&A. As I just mentioned, we will be back in your feed in two weeks with a new question about 7019 and a simple explanation. But in the meantime, you can find more information on our website. And if you have any suggestions for what questions we should cover, please do let us know. I can be reached at 202-624-2698 and Evan is at 2615. Thanks, everyone. This has been Bite Size Q&A a podcast brought to you by Kroll & Mooring. You can find more information at kroll.com slash cyberpodcast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you listen to podcasts. And if you enjoy our show, please leave us a review.